Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man means you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming Transforming truth truth to power. power. One One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. When we come to it, we, this people, on this minuscule and kissless globe, who reach daily for the bomb, the blade, the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace, we, this people, on this moat of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words which challenge our existence. Yet, out of those same mouths can come songs of such exquisite sweetness that the heart falters in its labor and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people, on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling, life is sapped from the living. Yet those same hands can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn 
that we are neither devils nor divines when we come to it. We, this people, on this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety and without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. One day, when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be everyone on this quintessential day in 2014. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Tonight, claiming our humanity. In January of 2014, we opened our broadcast system proclaiming Black America a state of emergency. Tonight, in our closing broadcast for this season, we're asking how we will claim and then proclaim our humanity in America, which we did not imagine. I'm Janice Graham, with Ajamu Baraka, Deona Hooper, and my special co-host tonight, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. We'll be listening for you in conversation, claiming our humanity. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon Formed against, yes, glory is destined Everyday women and men become legends Sins that go against our skin become blessings The movement is a rhythm to us Freedom is like religion to us Justice is juxtaposition in us Justice for all just ain't specific enough One son died, his spirit is revisiting us True and living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up When it goes down, we woman and man up They say stay down and we stand up Shots, we on the ground, the camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up One day, when the glory comes It will be out, it will be When the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, no. Glory, glory, oh. glory, glory, Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. 
Good evening, everyone, all you justice and victory seekers. This is our Common Ground, and we're so glad to have you with us tonight. As you probably know and understand by now, we are closing our 2014 broadcast season tonight. We will not be doing our Kwanzaa celebration this year, and uh, we hope that you will seek out and use the resources that are available in our social media spots uh, so that you can begin to organize and plan your Kwanzaa celebrations. Thank you to all the new listeners and people who have joined us in our chat room tonight. If you are listening and you would like to join us and you're having problems getting on via your computer, you can call in at 347-838-9852, and you can also join in our live, unmoderated chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. It is a quintessential day, and you won't see another one for 89 years, 12, 13, 14. And you can look forward in 89 years to seeing 121-22. We want to shout out and remember our dear warrior and comrade um, and elder ancestor, Ella Baker. Today is her birthday. As we come into the broadcast tonight, resistors loud and proud, thousands in New York City protesting police violence and killing of citizens in that city, seeking justice for dear loved ones and searching for justice and peace for our future. Also in Washington, D.C., the National Action Network March and Rally, young resistors who rose out of the blood of Michael Brown in Ferguson, took down the platform from old school organizers for themselves, chanting, this is our time. And and I, I think that as we led into the program tonight with uh, John Legend and Common, uh, the title is Glory. It is part of the soundtrack of the new movie, Selma. Uh, before we go into our planned program, again, I want to warn you that our government has now given permission to federal law enforcement persons to survey you, to also call you, as I would say, to pull you over on the worldwide on the worldwide internet highway. Be careful what you say or write. Be very, very careful. People are having the FBI, the federal police show up at their door by way of their IP address because of something that they wrote on Facebook or some photo they posted in Instagram. I don't use Instagram, so I have no idea. 
or something that they said on Twitter. Be very, very careful. Nobody wants to go to jail trying to light up the internets so they they feel victorious. Victory is not on the internet. Victory is at your school board meetings. Victory is the voting booth. Victory is changing the fabric and direction of what your church does in community building. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Toward the end of the program, I will be uh, giving you some other notes uh, that about the broadcast. And don't forget, uh, TruthWorks Network will have one more broadcast before the end of the year. The Alpha Show will broadcast live on next Friday. Tonight at Our Common Ground, Claiming Our Humanity. We are joined and we are so happy to have him with us, our guest host tonight, to help me navigate this final discussion, a discussion about our humanity, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. You know him. He's been here before. He is a native of Homestead, Pennsylvania, a scholar and activist in the field of developmental psychology of African boys and reparations for the transatlantic slave trade. He is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore. Uh, He is the author of a whole bunch of books that, if you have not read them, you should read them. His books are The Warrior Method, a program for rearing healthy black boys, and Should America Pay, Pay, Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations, and Belinda's Petition. If you have not read, if you do not have that as part of your home library, uh, sharing with your children, your neighbors, you should. And we'll be posting them in our chat room as we go along in this program. Our guests joining me with Dr. Wimbush will be Ajimul Baraka. He is a co-founder and former executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network, a veteran grassroots organizer, whose roots are in the black liberation movement, anti-apartheid, and Central American solidarity struggles. Also joining us in our first hour, Deona Hooper. She is the founder and the chief editor of socialworkhelper.com, and we're going to be talking about social work as the first responders in our community and how important their role is, and what we should be doing to support that. So I hope you'll stay tuned. I hope you'll email your friends to join us here at Our Common Ground. Dr. Wimbush, thank you so much, and it's so good to have you back on Our Common Ground. Hey, BJ, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, but we've had a tough year, uh, Ray, a really tough year. Um, Some things have become so clear to us about who we are and our condition in this country 
that um, I'm afraid we're just laying one injury on top of another injury, and the healing can't even begin because we're trying to ply through so much confusion. How are you? I'm doing fine. I mean, you know, thinking about what you just said and um, realized that I had really thought, even at the beginning of 2014, I said these next couple of years until the end of Obama's presidency are going to be tough. But I don't think I even anticipated it was going to be this tough. Um, these killings have been like psychic trauma on the minds of so many Africans that I've talked to literally around the world. So we've got to see what the end is going to be, as our ancestors said. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I have my 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 bestest friend, I guess you would call her, uh, mm-hmm. has been doing anti-violence work with women and men, both in intimate relationships and in, in regard to war in the Congo for the past uh, two years. And she's been doing some work in Liberia and Mali. And she was recently home. She just left last Saturday because her work is going to start in Ethiopia. And one of the things that she said to us in our many, many conversations while she was here for a month is that as she looks at her work relative to what she was doing in the Congo, that it is just so similar to what African Americans are facing in this country, which is why I think that we have to be real clear about how we frame, how we define our humanity in the context of all this stuff. Could you imagine our generation watching public, essentially public lynchings all over again? No, I can't. In fact, I I was thinking that we've always seen like still photos, as you just said, of public executions, public lynching of our people. Um, I'm thinking about that book that was written a few years ago called Without Sanctuaries. But Without Sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. Right. I just cannot recall that we have now witnessed with the murder of Eric Garner a live execution of one of our people, a live lynching of one of our people. I mean, in real time, I mean, it's almost unbelievable, but that's all, as far as I know, that's unprecedented. Absolutely. Unprecedented. Um, I've I've been calling it public executions uh, as well, and we have to begin to see it as public executions. You know, there there are a number of things that, uh, as you know, that when you begin to look at these things, outside of the mainstream media that you can recognize. You know, like last night I was on the air with Alpha when we were talking about Bill Cosby, but I wanted to talk about what is his wife experiencing with this, uh, with these uh, uh, accusations and attacks, and and it seems like his public persona has been fractured so severely. But when we look at the murder the murder of Trayvon Martin, when we look at the police execution of Michael Brown and Eric Gardner, when we look at 
John Crawford, when we look at when we look at all of these killings, we are essentially looking at and walking away with so much harm for our community. I'll give you an example, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk with our guest that we're going to have first up, uh, Deanna Hooper, uh, who is a social worker, and she is working in coalition with other social workers looking at social justice issues and how they are reflected in um, how they are reflected in what social workers do in our community. I'm wondering about the children who witnessed Michael Brown's body lying for four hours. I'm worrying about how safe any person who who was a witness to that could ever feel again. Well, it's trauma. You know, I, I, I think that when we think of trauma, we usually think of trauma as occurring in space. So, like, when the 9-11, I mean, that's America's trauma is, is being portrayed. When it occurred, we think of it, where were you, I don't know, Kennedy assassination, Dr. King, as in space. But trauma moves through time as well. And, I, you know, I, I gave a workshop this evening on how do you tell our children about the trauma that they have experienced during this year with these public yes. executions, as you call them. And I think it's something that social workers, psychologists, um, medical people have to understand that this stuff is affecting a lot of us in a lot of different ways. It, it's yes. not that these yes. executions are over there. They're right in our – I've gotten to a point that I cannot look any longer look at the – uh, Eric Garner execution. I literally yeah. turn my head when it yeah. happens. I, I I hear you. I can understand yeah. it. This, this you know, you and I, on the many times that you have been on this program, you and I, we always get to the issue of psychic trauma for our people, the psychic yeah. trauma of Jim Crow, the psychic trauma of being marginalized, minimized, underestimated, and undervalued in our jobs. Uh, even in our churches, because this stuff is starting, Ray, and I don't know how you feel about it, but this stuff is starting to turn inward. And we're going to yeah, talk yeah. about that uh, toward the end of the second hour. But let's bring Deanna Hooper in. Deanna, thank you so very much, and welcome to Our Common Ground. She's not there. Deanna. Thank you for having me. I had I had it on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. I've talked for 15 minutes on this program with it on mute. Uh, thank you so very much and welcome. Tell us a thank little about me. about your perspective in the short time that we have, about your perspective. about I call social workers the first responders because when things fall apart in our community, it is – the social worker, after the police leave, after the child has been taken to detention, after the father has been taken uh, to jail for a domestic violence issue, after the mother has lost the home, 
It is a social worker who begins to deal with trying to reconstitute. Tell us about your social worker help um, helper dot com uh, activities. Um, well, with social work helper, what what I focus on, and 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 the many people who I work in coalition with, we focus more on social justice issues, um, the policy behind. Um, issues that affect families, um, whether it be mental health issues, whether it be social issues, human rights issues, economic issues. Um, all of these things are areas that social workers tend to help people or, or come in contact with them when they're in crisis, whether it's an economic crisis, um, a domestic violence crisis, um, whether there's issues with the child in education or medical. Social workers reach families on a wide spectrum of issues and so with social work helper we try to bring to the forefront that it's not just only dealing with the psychological perspective of the individual but we have to look at the family unit then we have to look outside of the family unit at the community then we have to look at the city the state and the local at the policies that's affecting families all the way down to the individual level Mm-hmm. now um how much of the people who actually control and and Ray, you could jump in any time that you know you. But I I I really want to know how much social workers can affect the change and transformation of the policies and the people who control and create those policies to do a more precise job, specific to black families and black communities? Um, I just recently wrote a journal article on, on that perspective, and my my idea is that social workers, when there's a trauma such as Ferguson, and Ferguson would be a perfect, perfect opportunity to be able to assess a trauma-induced community and then put in protective factors and interventions that's going to help uplift the people um, and help to you know, reduce some of the issues that being a, this community is experiencing right now. And social workers are the the best place to start because we are the ones that's going into the homes. Um, after the smoke clears and everybody leaves, um, domestic mm-hmm. violence, those, respo- those reports are still coming in. Child Protective Service reports are still coming in. Children needing food and, and access to resources, all of those reports are still coming in, and social workers are the ones who are going to be in those homes um, continually. And if they had the resources, because it's already an overloaded system um, that's getting massive cuts with these, with this recent Congress and even more has come out, even more cuts have come out with this recent budget, the resources to be able to do an assessment and find out what the needs are, find out what areas are being um, mm-hmm. affected the most, re- social workers would have the ability to be able to find that information out so that in- interventions could be created to address them. But there, there's no resources, and they're already overworked, which leads a system that's built with helpers that don't have the resources to help. No, I think you were a good point, and I think that black social workers have been on the cutting edge of creating dialogues about things that up until then, you know, weren't even discussed. The best example, I think, is the whole dialogue that they started 20 years ago about black adoption, 
and the fact that social workers are, I don't know, I know a lot of social workers, and they are constantly overworked. But as you just pointed out, they ought to be the ones who are kind of uh, like first responders, but they often get sidetracked on the, the mundane, uh, not by their own choosing, but by systems who say, we just want somebody to take care of these people but they're not viewed as first responders in the case of trauma, especially as it relates to our own community. Yeah, we're definitely a lot. I mean, social workers handle 80% of mental health issues in this country, not not psychologists, not psychiatrists. Social workers are the ones who are providing the support that's needed for families whenever they are in crisis. Yet when a budget comes out, whether it be on the federal, state, local level, Social work and human service departments are the first to get cut, and, and, and part of that reason is social workers don't have a nationalized union like the teachers do or the police departments do. They're, we're, we're, we're just not as organized. Um, and, and even though there is a black social work association, um, the adoption issue that you raised um, was one of the things that have – prevented more social workers from becoming involved with that association. They took a stance that they didn't believe in interracial adoptions. And so that one issue really caused a fracture within their ability to grow and attract new and younger social workers. And so the lack of organization has really um, declined our ability to advocate on behalf of our clients and ourselves. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, let me let me ask you one other question, and that is, how, in terms of your project, and you've been doing uh, socialworkerhelper.com since 2011 when you graduated from the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, and you're trying to assist providers. And one of the things that uh, I think it's very important is to identify some of the strategies that can go on in the activist community because we recognize how important the issues of justice, education, uh, a, a, a correct, if, if that's a good term, a correct strategy for mental health issues in our schools, in our communities, and and our churches, black churches are really failing in the sense of providing information. How can the activist community help you, Diona, and to to activate and engage this kind of work in our communities? One of the things that I have found, and this is one of the reasons why I created Social Work Helper, um, I use it more as a vehicle to help other, whether it be nonprofits, churches, or other folks who are doing active, activist activities who don't have a great social media presence, um, I think one of the things that we are failing at is not using technology to our benefit to help us organize better, as well as online to support our on-the-ground efforts. And, and, and younger folks are, are really looking towards social media as aware as a way to be aware. Um, if it had not been for social media, we might not have had the Ferguson explosion to an international level um, 
because the community and, and those involved use it to really create awareness and get the word out. So that's one of the things that I try to do when I connect with um, providers, nonprofits, and other folks is, one, try to help them reach, well, give them a bigger platform and reach more pe people. I think we don't often support each other in, in, in campaigns to do that. Um, a lot of people are doing great things on the ground, but you can't get that at-large support if you are not using social media or connecting with others in your community to help coordinate, coordinate that campaign effort. So that's one of the things that I try to do to assist people. Um, you know, I have a, a pretty – Social Work Helper has a pretty decent following. And, and by supporting and acknowledging the work that others do, and help create awareness on important issues, I think that's the first thing that we need to focus on. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of, you know, just, you know, here, support my effort, but I'm not going to support your effort. No, it has to be a community effort. Uh, and, and one mm -hmm. of the things that I would love to see, not just with social work or with the nonprofit community, I, I would like to see our fraternities and sororities more involved. I'm not seeing a presence from them and and churches are very sporadic in how they um, have approached this activist movement. Uh -huh. well, I and I, I just want to throw this out. Sure. I hope the sororities, I hope the sororities can wear their colors in their letters. But you know, that's aside from. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, I, I We're gonna not going to go there that. tonight. Yeah, let's not, but I was going to chime in on that same point. Would they? Too many of our black organizations are majoring in minors and minoring in majors, and that is one of them with this whole argument, which to me was so silly about whether or not they could wear the letters publicly, which didn't make any sense. But that's, that's another discussion, DJ. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, Deona, one of the things that I hope is that our Common Ground Media and Communications can assist you and because I think the work of social workers are as important as a, as the work of medical doctors, uh, I I think it is more functional than the work of many of our mental health uh, practices. So one of the things that I will promise our audience, I will promise you, is that we will be talking with you about. How? Because I think that parents and citizens and teachers, black teachers who advocate for our children in schools, um, black police officers. I was I was with a black police officer this afternoon at a birthday party, and I'm sure she wished that I would have gone away. But um, <laughs> I, I think that one of the things that has to happen is that social workers have to help people understand how that system works for them and when that system works against them. I agree. I definitely agree. And, and that's, that's one of the things, you know, I have issues within my, my profession because right now I'm the only platform that's addressing these types of issues. Um, and, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, with the days of Whitney Young and Dorothy Hyde, social workers were at the forefront of the civil rights movement, and there has been a yeah. shift where that's not happening. 
there has been a conservatism that's at the, the top ranks of the profession now, and, and the, these issues are not being discussed. In, but the, yeah. the great news is there's a lot of students, a lot of professionals, um, both social work and non-social work, who do believe in this issue. And they're just looking for a place to congregate, and they're looking for that place to find where they can organize and be part of the solution, and, and hopefully my platform can be a, a beacon for them to come to. Absolutely. Well, and another you do thing so I think, no, I, I was going to put it into that. I remember when I lived in Chicago when I was doing graduate work, which was kind of like some people say the ground zero of social work because of Jane Addams. I was amazingly surprised, at, as you just pointed out, sister, about how activist social workers were you know, a hundred years ago at the birth of social work. And I mean, I mean, yeah. really upset the social system. And now they're more kind of like cogs in the machine and they've got to get back, actually just revisit their own history. And, and, That's and, right. And you, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And there, there is a movement taking hold and I'm happy to say that I'm a part of it. And shaking things up, um, you know, we want to get back. There's there's many of us who want to get back to our social justice roots. I mean, that's the reason why I got into social work. Uh, I mean, it, we we do lots of different things, but social justice and policy, we can't help someone struggling with domestic violence if the policies and the laws do not protect them. They all go exactly. hand in hand. Exactly. Well, Deona, so I am so grateful to you for joining us tonight, and I hope in our 2015 broadcast season that you will come back and we, with some of your colleagues like Alice Fisher, who I know at Hunter College um, in New York. Uh, who and 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 for those of you who are listening, if you go to socialworkhelper.com, you will find a number a great deal of resources, but the reading is so important. There are many, many articles about social justice, social work in our community. Deanna, thank you so very much, and I hope you'll stay with us tonight as we move along and close out this broadcast season. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to supporting your work. Thank you, and I look forward to supporting yours. I would definitely be following up after this broadcast. Okay, thank you. you thank you. That was Deona Hooper. She is the founder of Social Work Helper. It's a progressive magazine online providing news, information, and resources related to social issues, social good, and human rights. And we hope you'll visit and support uh, this must much needed. Ray, I'm telling you, they are the first responders. They become the yeah. voice of families who have no voice. They become the navigators. You know, when you have to, the, the, uh, our government has created systems that they say are created to help people, but many right. of them just serve to confuse people and to trap they them. Are, and- and it's almost like the social workers have become, like I said earlier about the cogs in the machine, is that they're there to maintain. It's almost like social work back, I don't know, I don't know when it happened. They they got co-opted into saying, look, don't challenge the system, be a part of it. 
of the yeah. system. Exactly. Right. I mean, he's, I, I, just very quickly, today I was doing some work. We're doing some focus groups in a real traumatized community here in Baltimore called Cherry Hill. And we listened in this church to a lot of people. And it was amazing how many black folks in that room blamed social workers for some of their conditions. And when I heard some of these stories, I've heard it before. So I'm glad that the sister is really doing something, doing, again, just simply going back to the roots of social work. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, who who will be the convener and the diplomat as men come for in our community, come back into the community, joining with their families? to help reconstitute a healthy relationship so that we don't see the kind of recidivism that we are seeing with young black men coming in and out of our jails at the local level and at the state level. You're listening to Our Common Ground. My guest co-host tonight is Dr. Raymond Wimbush. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with Ajamu Baraka, a human rights defender whose experience spans three decades of domestic and international education and activism. You stay tuned. And while we're on break, email a friend and say, hey, I'm listening to some hot talk that matters. I'm Janice Graham. I'll be right back. Climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety and without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when and only when we come to it. When the war is won, we will be sure. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. So, what are you doing? Are you oxygenating, creating, and preserving employment for the American people, or are you asphyxiating, suffocating, and overseas relocating employment against the American people? Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up, or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. She's really talented, but comes on too strong and should be less abrasive. Come on, sweetheart. Put a smile on that face. People find your tone a little off-putting. You should try to be warmer and more nurturing. Man, the way she wouldn't budge on that part of the contract. She was being a real bitch. And you know, no matter what, know your value, baby. No matter what, know you matter. Engagement is the cool. And always pursue your greatest you. If it's real raw right now, talk media, come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. It's the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. India brings real, 
Raw and right now on Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. If it's real raw right now, talk media, come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Real raw right now, talk media, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 11 p.m. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network. Fridays, 10 p.m. I'm letting you know That it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground with my guest host, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush. Uh, we want to just salute the thousands of people, loud and proud resistors, that came out in New York City today protesting our lost dear ones and cl- and proclaiming that we will have a peace and some justice from police brutality in the city of New York. It was a great thing, Ray. I just I looked at those crowds and said, "Amen." Ashe o. Yeah, there were 40,000 down here in DC and you know You probably have seen that map, B.J., of the demonstrations that have been not just in this country but around the world. This may be the largest demonstration in history. And I know that, I mean, globally. I mean, and and I know that sounds crazy, but I don't remember anything this big. It's on every continent around the world. 
and I mean it's just an amazing thing. So I'm really happy to see that. I want we'll talk later on about what I'm I'm writing some about what I call the end game of the Ferguson protest. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, Ray. You and I are always talking about the same thing because I've been saying for one year on this broadcast every Saturday night, we have got to decide what our end game is. I love that piece from the uh, TV show um, Scandal where the character Harrison talks about the end game. I'm going to play that for you later on in the show, but right now we've got to – go talk with um, Ajamu Baraka. He was a co-convener with Jarabu Hill of the Mississippi Workers' Center for Human Rights uh, and played an instrumental role in developing the series of biannual Southern Human Rights Organizers Conference. Uh, He was the founding executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network uh, from July 2004 until June 2011. And for those of you who do not know, uh, USHRN, or the human, U.S. Human Rights Network, was the first domestic human rights formation in the United States explicitly committed to the application of international human rights standards to the United States. And under Baraka, the network grew from a core of 60 organizations to more than 300 organizations. And during his tenure, it initiated the Katrina Campaign on Internal Displacement after our guest tonight was the first to formally identify the victims of Hurricane Katrina as internally displaced people. In 1998, he was one of 300 human rights defenders from around the world who were brought together at the first international summit of human rights defenders commemorating the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in 2001, he received the Abolitionist of the Year Award from the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, and the following year received the Human Rights Guardian Award from the National Center for Human Rights Education. He is currently an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and is editing a new book on human rights in the U.S. entitled, The Struggle Must Be for Human Rights. Voices from the Field and its schedule. I think it already has been published, but we're going to ask him that because I don't like to guess. Ajimu Baraka, thank you so very much for joining us. And I'm trying to decide where you are on this board. Brother Baraka? Uh, yes, hello. Oh, there you are. Yes, thank you so thank much you. and it's welcome my... to Our Common Ground. Oh, it's my 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 deep pleasure to to be here. We've been uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am <laughs> I am so sorry, but we we you know when we start when we stopped broadcasting five days a week, uh, it has really caused <laughs> me not to 
uh, be able to do as much as I would like to do, but we are glad you are finally here. And uh, Dr. Raymond Wimbush is my co-host tonight because I think claiming our humanity is an imperative for black people in the United States right now. Uh, Our children have been uh, diffused into beings that don't have much of a claim at this point. They're being killed in the street. They are being minimized in terms of their rights for housing, uh, education, and 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 food. Mm-hmm. Tell us about where we are. Who are we as a country in terms of uh, our struggle for human rights, the kind of human rights that we require of everybody else? Well, uh, first let me say that I, I really, again, appreciate being here, and, and I'm glad that um, we have a chance to have this conversation, and I'm glad to be able to dialogue with uh, another uh, person who is a very uh, one of our most uh, valued treasures here in this country, uh, Brother uh, Dr. Wimbush. Um, so where are we at now? I, I think that we, we have, uh, as Dr. King said, some difficult days ahead. Um, the 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 recent protests that we see around the country in response to the uh, the killings of the non-indictments uh, in Ferguson and then in, in New York, um, I think almost was a, a culmination of 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 growing frustration uh, and, and a recognition on the part of Black folks in the U.S. that that something had to be uh, it had to be an expression of opposition that i see the 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 protest while the the spark was the the non indictments i think that there's been something kind of growing uh, among uh, black folks for quite some time that even that i think people saw that even with the uh, the the first black president um with all of the stories of, of black progress uh, we still could feel and experience and understood that things just weren't getting better for us. In fact, things had gotten much worse, especially after 2008. And while folks tried to uh, not focus in on that and, and, and try to remain optimistic, and in fact, uh, in, in the midst of this economic downturn, the, the one community of people who who continued to be optimistic uh, about the economy was, in fact, uh, African Americans, even though we were catching hell. But it, it seemed that at some point, and I think the what the, the straw that broke the camel's back was what appeared to be the absolute uh, indignity, uh, insult, uh, assault on our collective humanity when uh, folks saw that you can shoot. Uh, our, our kids down uh, with impunity. We can watch someone get choked to death on on a video uh, and walk away. Uh, I think that that uh, that that almost I think that that reawakened 
this sleeping giant. And and I think that we see something that that has some real potential for a, a new kind of 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 a radicalization, if you will, a, a new kind of understanding of what it is we are up against. And maybe we can begin to talk about where we need to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brother Chamu, I, I, this is Ray, and I'm really honored to, you know, be here with you. Let me ask you something. I mean, you do a lot of international work. Um, in light of, I mean, you could say three events, particularly in the past few months, the killing of Michael Brown, the uh, the killing of Eric Garner, and now this past week the release of the torture report by the Senate. What, on a global level, where do you find America's, or where do you find America's credibility in terms of even talking about human rights? I mean, just well, you know, those three. I could name some more, but just those three. Well, I think that those three are, are, are significant, and, 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 and I'm sure we all can and connect those to a number of other kinds, another uh, other issues that have emerged over the last couple of years that have resulted in people around the world uh, not taking very seriously at all any claim by the U.S. to be any type of leader of, of human rights, uh, uh, a, a to to reject this claim of its exceptionalism. Uh, I mean, the the image of the U.S. has taken a, a real beating. I mean, there was some degree of of hope that there was going to be a turn away from some of its more belligerent uh, policies with the election of Barack Obama. Uh, but uh, with the uh, expansion of the, of, in, in some ways, the war on terror, uh, with the continuation of the uh, the war in Afghanistan, and now with the decision to, to expand the U.S. presence in, in Afghanistan with the the uh, move that was made by NATO on, on Libya uh, with the revelation of the uh, intensified surveillance of, of U.S. citizens and people around the world uh, that was revealed by Edward Snowden. Um, the, the, the propaganda value of, of the U.S. pretending to be a, a, a champion or a defender of human rights uh, has no currency outside of the U.S. I mean, it, it has even, uh, even lost its currency inside the U.S., but that uh, that line has been rejected by folks uh, internationally for, for for quite some time. Okay. And, 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 well, you know, the there, there is also we 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 always talk about international wars. We we you know we we talk about the destruction of 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 the contributions that black veterans might have made in Vietnam had it not been for Agent Orange and had it not been for the kind of brutal mental health problems, alcoholism, etc. But we never talk in terms of human rights, in terms of what has happened with Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. Because I see that as a d- domestic war against black communities. Yeah. Yes. I mean, of course, and 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 I'm glad that you you raise that because you know we have to provide some historical context for for uh, all of this stuff, and and 
and going back to the Reagan area is a, is, is a good place to go back to and and uh, lifting up this so-called war on, on drugs. One of the things that we have to be reminded of is that uh, people tend to forget that uh, Reagan's war on drugs was not something that he just just initiated himself. That there were there were elements in the black community that were calling on the federal government to do something about the the plague of drugs in the black community. Yeah, um, yeah. That we got to re- we got to remember that, and as we and we got to remember that because of some of the kinds of calls that we see coming from some elements of the black community today. You know, related to you know issues like uh, you know Absolutely. stuff in our community. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that 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 war on on drugs, in fact, as as we all know, became a war on the black community, and it took place at a at a very critical moment in U.S. history because the 1980s. You know, people everybody talks about the 1960s and 1970s, but I, I point people to the 1980s as a critical decade because the 1980s was really a, a decade in which to the full, the, the counter-revolutionary forces were in full, uh, in, in full yeah. development. Um, this was the period where you had the the, the real serious uh, turn toward neoliberalism uh, with uh, Thatcher and, and, and Reagan's uh, 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 leadership. Uh, you had the full unleashing of the state, the repressive state apparatus against the the, the remnants of the Black Liberation Movement and. Uh, you had the uh, the uh, uh, resources being directed toward undermining progressive and revolutionary uh, states around the world, and uh, you know, the, the movements in El Salvador, Guatemala, the, the funding of the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, of course, and then the funding of the Contras in uh, Mozambique and Angola, uh, the the uh, the support that was uh, the intensified support that was given by the U.S. government to. Uh, to, to the apartheid regime in South Africa, so there was a, 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 a there was a plan to roll back all of the pro, uh, progressive legislation and all of the progressive motion that took place uh, in the previous two decades in the 1980s. So part of that containment process, in my opinion, was also directed toward the black community, uh, and so the war on drugs was a very convenient way to uh, to intensify the the control apparatus in the black community to uh, to begin to uh, move more of uh, black folks out of the productive economy and into the into the uh, uh, the, the the ranks of, of being incarcerated uh, uh, populations and and it was it was a a period in which the the fabric of the black community was really uh, really ripped apart. Uh, so yeah, that war on, on on drugs has to be something that we lift up and try to put in mm-hmm. in, in historical context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I say on this program uh, often, I mean really often, that everything, that all issues have to be placed in some kind of historical context. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we have failed to do in looking at, um the resistance and the heartbreak of um of what has happened in Ferguson what is happening in New York City today uh the Eric Garner all the many that we have seen there have been 21 killings by police of black boys and men 
since Michael Brown was killed in the street by Darren Wilson. Mm-hmm. But we, in 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 the in the terms of the historical context, over the last twenty years, we don't recall how police murdered in their beds Fred Hampton, and how the Black Liberation Movement leadership was simply wiped out by police terrorism and corruption. We are not thinking about the 230 bodies of black boys that were found in a field where a detention center in the state of Florida, where it was it, it was in in the Jim Crow years, was established. And two years ago, 230 bodies were found in a field behind that detention center. So let me add to that. Let me add to that, BJ. The the still under here in Baltimore, of course, you know, this past April, uh, Marshall Eddie Conway was released after being incarcerated right. for forty years, and just two weeks ago, in fact, the same day as the Eric Garner decision, um, uh, Sekou Odinka was released. Was released. Incredible, mm-hmm. yeah, but with re- incredible restrictions on his parole. Uh, being in by nine a uh, nine o'clock and not being able to leave the state, I've been trying to get mm-hmm. him to speak at Morgan, and it's been like we did Eddie when he got out, and that's been almost an impossible task. So, a lot of the Panthers, a lot of members of the BLA are still under after thirty, as you just said, a job from that decade of the seventies and the eighties during that period. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know what what's interesting about the the issue with with, with our political prisoners is that a, a number of folks have been released over the last uh, uh you know a couple of years and and mm-hmm. I was just talking today with sister Ifia Wangaza from the Malcolm X grassroots movement who has been really in the forefront of 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 the work in the international arena on this issue over the last couple of years you know ever since we we raised it at the in Geneva in, in 2010 as part of the U.S.'s um, uh, review of the human rights record as part of the Universal Periodic Review. Uh, we brought over to Geneva um, uh, a brother from uh, the San Francisco 8. Uh, uh, we brought yeah. uh, uh, Ifea Wangaza over, and we, we, we were able to uh, 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 educate uh, some of our friends uh, in the international community from various countries on the ongoing uh, plight of, of political prisoners. And as a consequence of that work, uh, the U.S. government was, was questioned about uh, these these uh, people who are still incarcerated uh, in this country. And, and, and for some of those folks at that point, who have been incarcerated for like four decades. So some people believe that as a consequence of the the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, attention being brought to that issue, that that has helped along the process of moving uh, the authorities to a place where they have been uh, beginning to uh, try to rid themselves of this potential international uh, embarrassment by uh, releasing some of these some of these brothers. That's right. That's right. 
And it seems like uh, I just read, I think it's Uganda's president, if I'm not mistaken, that just has called, has just called for the boycott of the ICC, which up until, you know, well, up until today has only prosecuted African leaders. And I'm not saying that some of them shouldn't have been prosecuted for human rights violations, but it's clear that not all human rights violations have occurred on the continent of Africa. No. No, no, you know, and you're right, you're right, and 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 the issue is that is that not only all the 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 the, the African leaders are not the only ones involved in human rights violations, but they're not involved in even the most egregious violations. I mean, the 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 heads of states that have been responsible for the most egregious human rights violations on the planet over over the last decade uh, or more. Uh, have been from the West, exactly. Um, but you know, we don't find those folks in the dock. So the the ICC has lost so much credibility, um, and that's one reason why they had to drop those charges against the the, the president of of, of Kenya. Uh, and many people are questioning uh, the orientation of the ICC. But uh, you know, if if the ICC was going was really was really a, a committed to international justice. Um, it would be more adamant about uh, prosecuting uh, these these war criminals who are from the West, and of course, that's not that's not happening, and and probably won't happen anytime uh, soon. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. But you know, we have to continue to push this, the these push it. Never, nevertheless. Uh, you know, we we I'm down here in Savannah, Georgia, at the Southern Human Rights Organizers Conference, um, and we we are still uh, training people on this human rights framework. Uh, but what we are talking about is moving away from the traditional understanding of human rights and moving people toward what we call a people-centered human rights framework. And, and that is, we 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 say that. When we talk about human rights, we can't talk about human rights in the same way in which George Bush or even Barack Obama might talk about human rights. We've got yeah. to be talking about something that must be different from what they are talking about. And so we have to yeah. define what that difference is. And for yeah. us, the kind yeah. of human rights that we are talking about are human rights that are, are, are based on, grounded in the, the needs and the aspirations of, of the masses of the people. Uh, there are human rights that are defined uh, by by the people, and and part one element of of that kind of a, approach to human rights is a a, a commitment uh, to oppose war uh, and oppose yeah. the 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 illegal interventions into various countries that result in massive human rights violations. So, you know, even though we know the ICC is ineffective, we know that there are even some limitations with some of the UN structures when it comes to the equal application of human rights standards uh, and critiques, uh, we still have to push it uh, while at the same time transcend it and understand that we've got to build uh, a human rights movement that's grounded in, in the people as opposed to uh, governments. Well, you know, I, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I've been really, I guess as a psychologist, I've been really you know, I don't want to say surprised, but I've been really struck how the gradualism of eroding human rights in the face of war and technology mm -hmm. is 
has just become totally accepted. Um, if you read that uh, recent book by uh, Bob Woodward on uh, Obama, he says that the one, this is a quote from Obama, he doesn't deny it either. He said, the one thing I've learned since being president is to kill people. Well, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, even the, there was the Vietnam War, you know, World War Two, a few decades before that. But the oh, kind of like, let's call these things collateral damage, called, you know, these mistakes about bombing people's wedding. We don't even think of kill, that if we kill people accidentally in war, that's not a human rights violation. That's just part of war. So the definition of war has gotten so broad right now, but it also includes what 30 years ago we would have called human rights violation. Well, you know, Ray, Ray you're, you're absolutely right. But the, 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 the problem we have, though, in the international um, community is that these definitions have not been accepted by the international community that the, the U.S. definitions and, 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 the, and the British and, and Western definitions of what's allowable are, mm-hmm. are, are practices that are, are still deemed as illegal. The, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. drone warfare, for example, is in fact an illegal, illegal these are illegal acts. The, the they killing, are. The killing that takes place, these are all illegal acts. It goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about the International Criminal Court and, and and the the absence of real international justice. If there was real international justice, then the 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 leaders who are uh, who are responsible for these illegal acts uh, would be held accountable. But of course they aren't. Don't So these are these definitions are not definitions of you know accepted by anybody but uh, the U.S. authorities and Western authorities. But, you know, and one of the things that happens is that our media uh, in this country, they're lazy, they're ignorant, they're not well-read, they only read their own stuff, and uh, they are peddling the, the notion that this administration has no, I mean, I've listened to Eric Holder, I've listened to the director of the CIA, I've listened to our president, and one of the things that they're peddling is that there is no legal recourse for to take action against those people who authorize the violation of our military and foreign relations and war laws. They're saying that we can't do anything, and that's not true. Um, And I, pardon me. No, I agree with you. It isn't true. Right, and and we buy into it as citizens that they must know something that we don't know. So and and it goes, and that is what has happened over and over in regard to uh, the prosecutor in uh, in Ferguson, uh, the, the 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 failure to indict um, other police officers who have killed uh, without out any sense of law. Essentially why the militarization of the, our police departments across this nation and the culture of police authority 
being final in every community. And it's the media that's feeding citizens the idea that this is okay, that there is no recourse. Right, right. I think well, that, that, that I, I, go ahead. Well, I think that, that you, 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 it's clear that the media is reporting the fact that the Obama administration, very early in, 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 in its uh, experience, uh, decided that they weren't going to pursue um, any accountability for uh, crimes committed under, during the Bush administration when it came to the so-called war on terror. Yeah. Uh, there, was, yeah. there were two open investigations, uh, and they closed both of them down. Uh, so it's not, it's not it's not true that there's not any legal recourse. There is the absence of political will, though. Um, and you know, even if the legal recourse mm-hmm. in the U.S. was completely eliminated, and it, it may be uh, moving toward that, there's still some uh, legal recourses that can be taken by other states in the international community using the, for example, using the uh, doctrine of of universal jurisdiction, uh, which is a doctrine that says that basically if there are certain uh, individuals who are accused of committing uh, crimes against humanity or war crimes, uh, but they are uh, they have been failed, they have not been brought before an independent uh, a judicial body uh, within their nation or uh, internationally, that another state uh, can can move and seize those individuals if they have access to them, and actually uh, charge them and put them on trial. That was the the, the doctrine that was used uh, to arrest uh, Pinochet uh, of, uh, a decade or so. Uh, and so many people are making the argument that that's going to be the same thing that may happen uh, even with with Obama. We know that Bush and Rumsfeld are very careful about where they travel right now because of the possibility they went to certain places, like, for example, uh, Germany, uh, there's a possibility they could be indicted. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it, <laughs> if they go to New York City, and, and the reality is, for all of us folks out there, the reality is we should be demanding that they shouldn't be able to, 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 to travel to Chicago. Uh, but that's not happening. And and here is another human rights issue, and I and it takes me to Chicago, is that the warden superintendent of the Chicago jail was recently released after spending only 130 days when he was indicted for torture against jail inmates in the city of Chicago. He spent less time uh, than most spend for m- miscellaneous uh, shoplifting. Um, and, and, and so it brings me to Brother Baraka, uh, this idea of, yeah, we went to Geneva, we, uh, we um, pointed out and exposed human rights violations in the United States, and and we gave voice to victims of human rights abuses, and we did provide opportunities for activists to engage in direct advocacy. But where is the correction act, corrective action? And I know because of some of these things, the United States is pretty much dis- disavowed itself of the U- United Nations Human Rights Council. But 
where do we go from here? Hmm. Well, that's a good question, and, and, and it's important to note that the, the U.S. still engages the, the various U.N. structures. I mean, just, for example, the the outstanding work that was done by the U.S. Human Rights Network just a few weeks ago in Geneva, uh, working work, uh, bringing people to Geneva, including the uh, parents of Mike Brown, uh, to appear before the uh, the committee that's responsible for uh, the compliance of the of the U.S. government with the terms of the Convention Against Against Torture uh, and Ill Treatment, um, uh, and you all know that the uh, CAT is called the CAT Committee issued a uh, a comment uh, that called into question the ongoing um, uh, killings of, of black folks in the U.S. and their ill treatment by uh, by the police and the the Obama administration put up a vigorous defense uh, on front of that committee. So there, there's engagement uh, by the by the government. There was engagement uh, with UN structures even under under the Bush administration. So we have to continue to to engage in that kind of advocacy. The the I think w- w- the, the your question is going to the uh, another challenge, and that is beyond the advocacy. Uh, even and even sometimes the the favorable responses from UN structures. Where is the real corrective action within the U.S.? Uh, where are the the, the where are the, the the modifications or changes in U.S. law and practice? Uh, where are the 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 new kinds of, of structures put in place that will bring U.S. the U.S. practice more in line with international standards? Um, and the the answer or the response to that is that. There hasn't been much of that, and and part of the reason why that hasn't happened is because of the relative weakness of the human rights movement in the U.S. and the fact that there's not strong accountability because many people in the U.S. don't even know that the U.S. has certain kinds of obligations uh, and responsibilities uh, related to human rights uh, because of the existence of these different standards. So. You know, so they they are able to escape. They they are able to mm-hmm. escape responsibility and escape their mm-hmm. obligations. So we have. You know, one of the things that. It, go ahead, Ray. Well, just real quick, uh, maybe it's not quick, but I remember the mm-hmm. prosecution of William Calley during the My Lai massacre, when there was an accountability mechanism built into the United States, and and he was prosecuted. What changed between in the past 30 years in this country that we see these? And I'm not trying to say the United States was like virginal with regard mm-hmm. to human you know, rights violations prior to Vietnam or whatever. But what really changed it to me? I mean, like I heard uh, the Prince of Darkness, uh, Dick Cheney, say this week, he called that <laughs> the report uh, hooey or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, what change went Crap. from a William? That's what he yeah, said. right. From William Calley taking or being forced to take a responsibility for killing people in a Vietnam village to a former Secretary of Defense who essentially says, you know, screw all of this stuff. We don't. We don't have to deal. What changed in the past thirty years? The country went to the right. The country is going to the right, and, and there, there's no no real and, – and, and, and we, we talked about already 
along with the country uh, swinging to the right, the kinds of accountability structures, including uh, media, uh, also swung to the right. The, the, the concentration and centralization of, of media control uh, with six corporations um, that, that basically uh, uh, parrot the, the government line. So there's no accountability. There's no political will to even enforce U.S. law. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so you have so for for example, you have a situation now where you have and no one's but no one's talking about it in the U.S. You have the U.S. engaged in military actions in Syria. There yeah, is no. absolutely no legal basis for that. This is a very serious departure because even when the U.S. engaged in, in illegal actions in in uh, in Iraq, they at least gave themselves U.S. legal coverage for that. Right. You know, it was it was a rationale that no one really accepted outside the U.S. But at least they attempted to to give themselves a, a, a coverage by um, trying to make the claim that there was a a connection between uh, 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 Saddam Hussein. And the 9/11, and then the immediate or imminent threat of, of attack by uh, the possibility of, of weapons of mass destruction being uh, placed in the hands of so-called terrorists in Iraq, and therefore it gave, you know, uh, the U.S. the authorization under the the, uh, the U.S. law to basically engage in military actions. But for Syria, there is no legal basis for the U.S. to be involved in. In this action in Syria, but yet no one is calling any attention to this within the U.S. Congress. So there's a, a lawlessness that has emerged as the country has swung to the right, also. Mm-hmm. And 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 that swing to the right, um, I think, peaked at the time of 9/11, where all brown people, all people from the Middle East. Uh, became somehow demons. And there's something else, too, and that is we have less of a public that defines themselves as beneficiaries of human rights law. You know, all you out there, and I know you're going to send me an email, I don't care, Um, all you out there who say, oh, yeah, I believe in human rights, and I'm in the human rights struggle, need to ask yourself, well, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the people who, many people who claim to be uh, in support of human rights have allowed themselves to be manipulated by the U.S. state because part of mm-hmm. the justifications for some of these assaults in places like Libya uh, and even in Syria uh, and back into Iraq have been on the basis of of humanitarian intervention or the responsibility to protect. I mean, the the whole rationale for attacking Libya was to prevent a a massacre, a so-called massacre that was going to take place in Benghazi by right. uh, Gaddafi and his government, uh, and therefore the 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 West, under the guise of of NATO, uh, made the argument that they had a, a moral responsibility to. Intervene in order to stop this 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 criminal act. Well, you know, in the process of them intervening to uh, to to for to, to uh, avert a humanitarian crisis, 
They created a humanitarian crisis. Exactly. Some people, some people argue that almost 50,000 people ended up uh, losing their lives with this NATO intervention. And, of course, we know that they ended up uh, uh, absolutely destroying uh, the Libyan state. Mm-hmm. But that, that, mm-hmm. that, 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 inter, that intervention, that assault, was supported by a majority of the American people because it was framed as a right. humanitarian intervention. No. And many of you know, the human rights folks gave 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 support to that gave uh, and provided the rationale because the whole notion of humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect these are are, are ideals created out by human rights theoreticians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Uh, Uh, We're going to take a break right now because we're at the bottom of of the hour, and when we come back, uh, talking with Ajamu Baraka and with my co-host, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, we're going to start a conversation about reparations as one of the corrective actions of human rights in America. I know y'all cringe, cringe right on, but I think we do need to put reparations in the context of human rights. And many people need to understand what that means. And my brothers are going to help us sort it all through. This is our common ground. I'm Janice Graham. Coming back right after this break, I'll be listening for you. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure to present on my album, Mississippi Galaxy. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, lawyers destroy justice, universities destroy knowledge, governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, religion destroys morals, our banks destroy the economy, the inability to defend on all of these fronts, be it voter suppression. And you can go down the line. You can go down the line. The Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress. (laughs) Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. It's the Alpha Show, only on TruthWorks Network. Your Fridays just got served. Every Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Network. <laughs> Conditioning your unconscious. And the way you recondition your unconscious is by consciously keeping negative content from coming into the mind while at the same time constantly introducing your mind and repeating within your mind positive information. See, the unconscious is the creature of habit. The reason why we hate ourselves so well is because we were taught that we were nothing for 243 years. 
So you can imagine told the same thing for 243 years, the conditioning is strong. So to uncondition, you have to do the same thing. Now, the good news is it won't necessarily take you 243 years to uncondition the self-hatred, but it will be extensive. The problem is we're still allowing ourselves to be subject to negative information, and we're allowing our children to be subject to negative information as well. So while we are engaging in self-directed mental reconstruction therapy ourselves, our children are being victimized by white supremacy because we're not controlling. Well, every time you see me, with a message. I'm proud of it. It's not today. Give me some pride, Lord. Make me feel proud of myself. Let me walk with my head up. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to our common ground. Common Ground, and we have tonight looking at, in conversation about, claiming our humanity. My guest tonight, Ajamu Baraka, a human rights defender and activist, and my co-host, Dr. Raymond A. Wimbush, who is the author of Should America Pay? Slavery and the Raging Debate on Reparations. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about reparations. Our number is 347-838-9852. We're going to talk a little bit, and if you get on our board, we will take your calls up until a quarter of the hour. Thank you, gentlemen, once again, my dear brothers, for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Uh, Dr. Ray, you wrote that book, Should America Pay, in 2001, and rewrote it in 2003. Right. And I'm not hearing the raging debate, and I'm certainly not hearing it uh, in the black national, uh, in in, in the human rights community, uh, Brother Baraka. So where are we and how do we place that in the context of addressing the gross and deep human rights violations in America within our community? Well, well, very quickly, I mean, look, let's be real that um, a lot of Africans in America took a sedative after Barack Obama became president. And and that, unfortunately, included the more progressive movements in our community. Um, I'm excited to be honest with you about the reparations struggle that is occurring outside of this country rather than inside. 
uh, and it's not that it's, I don't think that it's dead. I think it's become more comatose since the WCAR in 2001. Uh, I gave the Kwame Turi lecture in Trinidad uh, this past summer. They asked me to give it specifically about reparations. If you go through the Caribbean with the CARICOM lawsuit involving the members of CARICOM, reparations is on the lips of all through the Caribbean. I mean, this past, it wasn't just Trinidad, but I had been within the year in St. Kitts and Nevis, in fact, bumped into Randall Robinson there. And so what I see is that the movement for compensatory justice is moved away from our shore. And, and I'm not saying totally, but it's definitely with the lawsuits that are being filed against mm-hmm. the European nations for the transatlantic slave trade. Right, right. Uh, and, 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 and I, I, I just want yeah. I, I to insert something there for our audience. If you go to the Our Common Ground website, which is ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com, because I haven't had a chance to move our domain, uh, it's ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com. There is a lecture, a one-and-a-half-hour lecture, on the issue of the transatlantic slave trade in the Caribbean by Sir yeah. Hillary Beckley. Beckley. No, Hillary Bentley Hillary Beckley, right. No, Hillary Beckley. Hillary Beckley. Okay. Thank you, Ray. It is absolutely riveting if you want to really understand the transatlantic slave trade in the Caribbean and how the reparations movement is so powerful. Thank you, Ray, for making those points. Um, what, what, what are you thinking, Brother Baraka? I'm, I'm in agreement with Brother Ray in terms of, of the momentum of, of this conversation. Um, really picking up outside of, of, of the U.S. in the Caribbean uh, and where I live at in, in, in South America in particular. I mean, in Colombia, for example, that is this is a, a conversation that the, the yes. uh, black movement is, 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 is involved in right now and, and, and looking at strategies in terms of how they uh, are going to approach the Colombian government uh, with this issue. And with now with the beginning of the UN decade on Afro-descendant people, um, there is a real possibility that this is going to become even more of an issue that people are going to talk about because, you know, as, as we all remember, you know, this became uh, one of those, those flashpoint issues, you know, during the, during the WCAR. Um, and um, that, while you know W Carr and the momentum of that sort of uh, was squashed in the U.S., uh, it, it still continued and and oh yeah and and, and, it, and it, it sort of was brought back into the fold and got more attention really in the last few years and I, and I think as a consequence of the economic crisis that uh, had a worldwide uh, exactly. impact. So yeah, so this this is this is and I think it's an interesting and exciting conversation because. It helps us also to re-articulate um, some positions that we need to uh, remind ourselves of as it relates to how we 
we relate to the U.S. state? Uh, what is the nature of the U.S. state and the U.S. society? It helps to bring back issues around settler colonialism uh, and, and, and to, for people to understand the connection between, you know, the genocide and theft of Indian land and the slave trade and the creation yes. of, of, of the white West. Uh, so right. People understand that the, the global inequality we have today didn't just come about as a consequence of, of, of these Europeans with their superior technology and, other, and, and superior intelligence, but it came about as a consequence of, of the barrel of a gun. It was first a sword and then the barrel of a gun, and that uh, the, the, the conquering of the Americas uh, and then the colonization of Africa and the rest of the world resulted in the creation of what we know today of as, as Europe, and that the issue of reparation isn't something just you know relevant in the U.S., but is is, is an issue that defines the connection between the, the global North, if you will, and the global South. And people understand mm-hmm. that, and people saying that you, we're not going to have authentic decolonization and real social justice until. Uh, we have a, a, a process of real reparations, and our reparations, uh, many of us believe, will only come about uh, as we begin to shift power away from, from these European governments. Uh, as you're absolutely correct. And I always tell audience, I, I gave some lectures in Amsterdam of just a couple months ago, and I always tell African audiences wherever I go that Europeans like to start reading the book in the middle of the book about us and then proceeding to the end. And, they, you know, we've got to start telling them and showing them that we've got to start the dialogue at the beginning. You know, in this country, we need to talk about enslavement and before the so-called founding fathers. And Europeans are very good at, like like I said, just telling half of the story. And that repair that's a part of reparations is not just economic or anything else like that. It's also the psychological repair because oftentimes we fall into the trap of just starting to tell half of our story to people. And sometimes it's not even that much. I, I've been really just buoyed by what I've seen in Europe among those nations and the connection now between those um, immigrated uh, Caribbean people who have gone to, you know, London and Paris and Amsterdam and how CARICOM is kind of the lawsuit has kind of energized them to revisit the, uh, the history, the whole story. And, and, and simultaneously, uh, a strong reparations movement being born, and I, I use the term born, in Europe right now among immigrated Caribbeans and others. So it's I'm excited about In this country, like I said, you know, after we recover from the sedative that many of us took with the, you know, the ascension of Barack Obama, you know, it's, and it's beginning to wear off now, I think. I think that we'll be more energized in this country as well. Well, I think that the first thing for those of you who are listening, and you know who you are because we talk about reparations on this broadcast a lot, you need to stop 
snickering. <laughs> That's the first step. Uh, in yeah. our community, we need to understand that in order for us to repair, it's not going to come out of legislative edict, one program at a time. We can't build enough affordable housing in this country. We can't print in a, enough uh, checks for government assistance in this country coming out of Congress. We have got to have a movement that's going to move this country in the same way, and that is going to come by serious discourse. It's not going to – and organizing. It is not going to come because uh, Ted Cruz decided that he wants to feed some hungry children. You're, if you've just joined us, uh, you do have to hit one if you want to talk with us. We have loads of people uh, who are either, uh, it looks like they're listening on their telephones. But, gentlemen, I'd like to take one caller who has been holding on for a very long time, and then we're going to have to close up on this discussion. But, Brother Baraka, you're going to definitely have to come back in our 2015, early in our new season, uh, to talk more about our embracing of the concept of human rights violation in this country because they're happening across the street, around the corner, at the train station. Today I went to a protest, uh, and there must have been 300 Massachusetts cops blocking the highway that we intended to, uh, where we intended to stop uh, traffic and have a die-in. 954, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Thank you, Sister CEO, and to the guests. Um, first of all, um, reparations is definitely a reality and inevitability. And under this capitalistic system, we ain't going to get any damn thing, you know, as far as that goes. Number two, when we start dealing with this police state that we're dealing with, we've we got to start supporting these brothers who are starting to step up to the plate that we help get into the police departments of the United States across America. Carlton Berkeley's one of them, um, the brother in New York, um, Adele Palacio, even Frank Serpico, even though he was trying to bust them for corruption back then in the okay. 70s in New York City. But as far as recreations go and dealing with the out-and-out onslaught by police, start taking pictures of these folks, and post them in subways and public places, wanted dead or alive. And I'm serious because I did it in Howard Beach when they did that movement back there against them. As far as yeah. recreation goes, yes, it's inevitable and it can be done, but it won't be done under the guise of a capitalistic system. I was in country when Medina and Lieutenant Cali did the My Lai Massacre, and they both wind up doing pretty well to Vietnam. You know, Medina yeah. was in California with Long Beach or uh, McDonald Douglas or Lockheed and then uh, Cali wind up opening up some jewelry store in Canada, I think it was. So in that reality, yes, this can be done recreation. Japanese got it and we've got tidbits of it under some pseudo guise as uh, certain educational things which really didn't manifest 
yeah. into uh, uh, Rondé, economic reality. You've made, uh, I know, you've made I'm the, trying to get it all in yeah. there. But, I know, yeah. I know. We'll all see right. you Thank on you the other the side in 2015. Anyway. Thank you for your call, Arande, from uh, Honolulu. I think he's in Honolulu. Uh, but um, I, I think the, the brother makes some points, uh, and as he always does, that make us mindful about what is possible. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. go ahead. I would, I would ahead. probably have to agree that basically reparations is not going to come about uh, until there is a, a change in, in the power dynamics of the U.S. Uh, and so reparation becomes part of a, a a revolutionary program, a program mm-hmm. in which power has been shifted to the people, and we are now a restructuring mm-hmm. society. And part of that restructuring. Uh, it requires the, the repair of, of, of African people, but also uh, some other folks here in, in, in these, these territories we call the U.S. Yes. Brother yeah. Baraka, thank you so very much for being with us. You are a national treasure in my mind, and um, I really look forward to our continuing um, relationship and dialogue about how we can inform, educate, and ignite our community to be a part of the human rights struggle uh, in this country, that it becomes... Thank you, Brother Baraka. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to to coming back to talk about human rights and all of the geopolitical issues we we have to face. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. Ray, my goodness, you know, the thing is that we have so many voices that are well-informed, well-tuned at a depth that sometimes we um, take for granted. Restate that once more. I we that. we we just we take we take for granted the voices and the the informed and insightful um, people that we have in our community as resources. But this is what I want yeah. to talk to you about over the over the next. Um, we only have about eight minutes to talk about it. But let me ask you a question. Um, many of us have been very engaged and have been very hyped up about this notion of Black Lives Matter. Do Black yeah. Lives Matter? Well, to us, it should. To them, no. I mean, if it did, we wouldn't be seeing some of the abuses of uh, of our bodies and our children that we've seen consistently, not only in recent American history, but throughout American history. Uh, We're doing some research at the Institute here at Morgan now, and we're finding that, and we're controlling for population and a variety of other factors to make sure there's some honest data that we'll publish. And we're finding that going back 115 years ago, Africans are being killed by police faster than we were being lynched during the height of, you know, the Ida B. Wells era, as we call it, when we were being, I mean, 
hanged and killed at several levels. So right now, when we say Black Lives Matter, I've got mixed emotions about that whole thing. And I know it's become kind of that as well as uh, hands up, don't shoot, and I can't breathe, kind of the three memes that have emerged of, of this. That's the one I have most trouble with because I think that we don't have to prove our humanity to anyone. That's something that you do yourself with your community, with your village. I don't, so I won't hold up. You won't see me holding up Black Lives Matter because if they did, it it reminds me, and I know I broke, interrupted myself, but it reminds me during the, uh, the Katrina disaster, uh, I remember seeing this sister holding up a sign on top of her roof in big letters, I am an American. And I said, I don't know. I think some words get lost in translation in the system of white supremacy because if she were, you know, she wouldn't be on that roof. And it's the same thing when I see Black Lives Matter. To whom? You know, mm-hmm. if it's to us, then I don't have to make that statement. My life matters. All African lives matter to me. And I don't want to tell somebody that as if they either don't know or we don't know, which is even more tragic. So I've got issue. I can't breathe as fine as things, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's like we've got a question. I mean, we did 50 years ago, we shall overcome. You know, and I remember brothers and sisters were asking when and with whom and over what. And I think we've got to question all, you know, and I'm not just saying that we don't have slogans, but we got to question what are we really saying. That's yeah, when we, when we proclaim these things, are, mm-hmm. they, are they at the heart and core of our reality? I've, yeah. I, I, I'm glad you talked about that because... I've really, I even went on Twitter, and I I don't twit a lot, but I went on Twitter and said, Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter, to whom? Exactly. the question. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And and, and one of the things that I want to say in this last broadcast, and, you know, we started our 2014 broadcast with – the theme for the for the broadcast year being black america a state of emergency and mm-hmm. i i really don't think that we are taking our oppression um as seriously on a day-to-day basis as we need to take it and that's very no, no. troubling to me no, I agree, and I, it's not just rhetoric when I say that we are in a state of emergency, but we are also in a state of war. I think it's more than a coincidence that during this past, if this had been a year ago, we would not have, we, we, I mean, we live with police, and I don't even like to call it police brutality, but, I mean, we lived with police violence for many, many years, for centuries, in fact, but had I told you a year ago that we would have not just Trayvon but two other young men in very disparate places, New York and Ferguson, Missouri, 
and they, they were going to become internationally known for what this country did. You said I was crazy. But I think it's no coincidence that this year also, and I, I say this very advisedly, that there's been three books written about the use of self-defense in the black community. All have gone to the bestsellers list. Uh, the book, We Will Shoot Back, um, that joins Negroes with Guns, uh, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. And there's one about, I think it's called Black People and Guns or the Negro and Guns or something like that. And so I think that we've got to, I think that we've got to put a lot of new and revisit discussions on the table now. A lot mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And, and well, Ray Wimbush, I think that we just have to keep pushing at it and pushing at it and I'm looking forward to uh, having you join us more in our 2015 season, which will start on January 5th, because I do think that we have got to become a mindful people. Yes, I agree. Because I agree. We, cannot, we cannot organize, we cannot struggle without purpose and mindfulness. So thank you so very much for joining me tonight. I I, I have found this work, BJ. I mean keep up the I have found this just, major service. Major service and keep it going. Well, you know, as I have to explain to my family and loved ones, this is the rent this is my rent for being on the planet. Uh, I'm paying my rent. So thank you, and you have a wonderful Kwanzaa season, and best wishes to you and your work at Morgan State University. For those of you who are in our chat room and listening, I have posted Dr. Wimbush's Facebook page. Um, He does wonderful history work every day on his Facebook page, and so much insightful commentary about what is happening in our community. Thank you, Ray, and uh, best wishes to you, and uh, you keep doing what you're doing. Dr. Raymond Wimbush, he's the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. It is the only think tank that is doing the work looking at urban situations in our community. Thank you for being with us tonight. I'll see you in our new season on January 5th. I'm Janice Grant. And at no time the officer said that uh, he was going to do anything, and still he pulled out his weapon. His weapon was drawn, and he said, I'll shoot you, or I'm going to shoot. And in the same moment, the first shot went off. And we looked at him. He was shot, and it was blood coming from him, and we took off running. Are we all alone, fighting on our own? Please give me a chance. I don't want to dance. Thank you for joining us tonight, and thank you for all of your support, your listenership, and your bravery to talk race with hope and courage. We will continue to engage with you in all of our social media spots, Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, Scoopit, our website at ourcommonground.wordpress.com. 
please join us there. And don't forget, on our website, you can find all of the information that you need for the celebration of the Kwanzaa season. It's been a pleasure to serve you in this 2014 broadcast year. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. We send out our appreciation to all of our guests, the Our Common Ground Voices that has made this 2014 season a strong, powerful, and informed one. We'll be back here January 5th in our 2015 broadcast season. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is Can you tell me why? Every time I step outside, I see my niggas die. Oh, I'm letting you know that it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh, no. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is break the chains off. All we want to do is be free.